From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics and bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. Something crazy is happening right this second. I'm expelling air and manipulating my throat, tongue, and lips in such a way as to create very specific sound waves in the air. These sound waves are in turn vibrating some metal in a microphone, which is transferred into an electrical signal, digitized, and then reproduced by a vibrating speaker cone near you at some point in the future. And after all of that, those specific sound waves I produced vibrate numerous bones and membranes in your ears, which send signals to your brain that are subsequently decoded into speech and sorted into a meaningful message. This has all taken place in under a second, and also over the course of days, weeks, months, or even years. That's right. Language is going to be that kind of topic. All right. So, and, and not even just that kind of topic. Like, that's mind-blowing right there. The, the actual physical yes, sort of process of how we formulate language and how it's transmitted and how it's received. Those three aspects right there could take up the whole conversation, but... Um, you know, even outside of that, all the different ways that language interacts with the typical things we know is just mind boggling. I was thinking about it today and my brain is just kind of a, like a spider weaving a web or weaving a web. You know, I, I just go from thing to thing to thing and then I have to try to weed out what is actually important to, to talk about. But so let's start with the nature of language and really a definition first and foremost what's the difference between language and communication interesting question all right so language is language is the method language is the <clears throat> the building blocks the 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 tools the material that we then shape to communicate. So you're talking about the the process of the the voice. So we we have fricatives. We have all kinds of different sound making. We we have phonemes, uh, which are the, the uh, we have different levels of these sounds that are then put together to as you were describing. But then we have we've assigned letters and combinations and clusters of letters representing the sound to be put together to make a sign that will signify something else. And the communication is whether or not that signification, that sign signifying, uh, is actually received and, and how it is received. 
Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Philosophy, you know, is it's part science and part art. So <clears throat> I'm going to th throw out something that's utterly unscientific. But when I was thinking about it this morning, it kind of it sort of made sense to me, which is that language is almost like uh, another sense. It's almost like a psychological echolocation sort of thing, like where we you send something out to try to make meaning of what's out here and then what comes back to you is not going to be perfect, but it's going to inform you about what, what's happening, you know? Yes. And, uh, yes. And, and then you and, revise it. You just say, Oh, nope, that's not what I meant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you get the echo back from somebody else saying what, and this is what you really mean. No, that's not what I mean. I mean so, right. and, and, but what's funny about it is that, you know, in the same way we don't, I think in, in a lot of ways, we don't question language the same way we don't question our other senses, but it, it's definitely still inadequate to perceiving reality in the same way the other ones are. We've yes. talked about how you only perceive a sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum in vision. You only hear a sliver of the sound spectrum with your ears. And in the same way, um, you know... It's it's sort of platonic in that way where you're you're in the cave and you're seeing the shadows on the wall, but you're not actually seeing what's there. And we're gonna we're gonna get into some of that. How how effective is language at actually conveying what's there or what we know or what it, it means? But yeah, so it's just kind of an interesting interesting topic. So language is like you said, it's it's a tool that we use to communicate. And in a lot of ways, I think that a lot of people um that's how they kind of separate us from the animals to an extent. Animals communicate. We we observe animals communicating, but they don't use language in quite the same way that we do. No. Though some animal life may actually have grammar and syntax of a kind that's vastly different than our own, but if we can tease that out, if we can disentangle it, then we'll have to be humbled yet again and say, nope, we're not even top of the chain for this right and i mean it really wouldn't be it wouldn't be too surprising to see especially when you look at um the context of language around the globe and you see all the different languages and all the ways that they operate and that really that's what gets into some of our big questions today is you know we i think especially here in america where the majority of us speak one language you tend to think of things a certain way when in reality somebody who speaks a different language would think about that same concept in an entirely different way. And that argument about does language actually inform thought or does thought inform language? Which one is the snake eating the tail? This <laughs> there's a, well, there's a lot of debate in philosophy about that and an acknowledgement of the relationships between, but you just mentioned that thing about monolinguistic systems, the, 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 our culture, we are so, monolinguistic we we have one language primarily students study other languages some master them but if you think about most of your predominant high school or college experience you may have studied a language but you don't necessarily use it and therefore but i'm in a, i'm but i'm immersed in a situation in college in which i have students from kurosawa students from japan uh, students from a, a quite a variety of places uh, predominantly right now, Kurosawa in Japan, and and Kurosawa students have five languages: Dutch, French, Spanish. There's one more, and then 
it is put together into a melange, a stew that's called papiamento. And it's fascinating. I, I will watch, listen to my Carousel students uh, off on five-minute break during theater rehearsal. And they'll be talking to one another, and they'll go from Dutch to Spanish to French uh, to Papimento. And, and here I am, primarily monolingual, although trying to learn some of this to actually practice with them. And here we are in a culture which, between 1990 and uh, 2013, one language program in our colleges and universities across the country was shut down. Just one. Between 2014 and now, something on the order of 600 have been shut down. Hmm. Which means we're getting less and less interested in, in other languages than our own, which points to our own narcissism and our self-importance. English is just the imperial language of the planet. But it won't be for that much longer. <laughs> right, right. And and that, you know, it makes you wonder, these people who interface in, in English, English becoming, like you said, this kind of global language of commercialism, you know, how does that influence thoughts? You know, I remember my brother was, he works with a guy who, um, he goes all over the world and works with engineers at these different plants that the company has around the place. And he said that, the these plants in different countries will um conduct meetings all differently when he comes and to have a, a big meeting about a big project you know and he said he goes to germany germany will um round up the the top their top engineers their top people they'll receive the information and then they'll pass it down to mid-level managers and to lower level managers and that goes that way whereas he said if you go to um japan he said the japanese will collect the whole plant Everybody, the janitor, will be in on this meeting, and they'll, you know, everybody will hear it. Whereas he said, you go to France or Italy, they're very individualistic. So, you know, lots of times they'll be told something, and it's like trying to herd cats. You know, everybody <laughs> just wants to do their own thing, or you know. And I'm sure that you know it doesn't. It's these are all generalizations, but you know how people, um, how people reflect on their culture and their and their um, their history and and everything. That all is reflected in in language as well. And I was reading an interesting study this morning. This one is the one that really got me thinking about this whole um, cross cultural lingual divide. They they did a study with um, Germans and Spanish Spaniards, and because they had two words, key and bridge, and the one is masculine in the one language and feminine in the other. And vice versa with bridge. And then they conducted the actual study in English, which doesn't have any gender classifications. And what they found is that um, the Germans who were had key was masculine to them, had words like metal and jagged and rugged and strong for key. Whereas um, the Spaniards had gold and delicate and and these other things. And bridge was the other way around, you know. The Germans had, you know, picturesque and fragile and, you know, dainty and these sort of things, whereas the Spaniards had sturdy, and, you know, and strong and, and these sorts of things. So, so you, you know, you can see that just by assigning a gender to something that that influences, that's some evidence for language influencing the thought. Now, 
where my mind jumped immediately after that was to, you know, thinking about the origin of language, which is, you know, you go back all the way to the beginning of time, you have language. Language had to have been informed by thought. So obviously they're, they're both informing each other because it's a chicken and egg situation where if language influenced thought, well, there eventually there comes a time where there was no language. So you couldn't have. Well, that's where, the, where well, people yeah. would say, well, we weren't human until we had language. Right. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the origin of language. It's, it's progression, that sort of thing. So what can you give us the background on those two arguments, language inf- informing thought and thought informing language? I can give you the background of, of, of that, but I will tell you that from a philosophical viewpoint, the, the discussion of language didn't really launch until the mid to later 1800s. So this is still a relatively new conversation. Now, if we, if we look at records, I mean, you were talking about capitalism and I was talking about imperialism, we were talking about business. The earliest records of writing that we have are essentially hieroglyphic accounting sheets for how much beer was stored. And, you know, so language as far back as we can tell had a certainly a utility and accounting purpose. And, and some of the language theorists would say, do say, did say that that really language is primarily about representing or describing what we see in the world. And, and the really the most efficacious language is that which is factually informatively based. Uh, I see a drum set. There is a drum set. Okay. And, but that doesn't let us get very far. Uh, uh, a German, uh, Gottlob Frege said that essentially we're not talking about labeling things when we're talking about language. Language is just not limited um, to labels. That there's a thing called sense and there's a thing called reference. And as soon as you begin talking about those things, then you have a, a, a beginning of an ambiguity. Uh, Ferdinand de Saussure said that language is not just about the external. Uh, yeah, we, we, we try to make sense of the world, as you said. Uh, but. But the structures, language itself is a strange thing. The thought, thought and language are so intertwined. Language structures our reality. And that sounds like a sort of Twilight zone kind of thing to say. But how many different ways might I describe through privileging certain items this studio? Right. And we talked about that... Um I can't remember what episode it was. It might have been knowledge. We talked about the uh, that philosophical exercise of the three blind men and the elephant, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And it's that same thing, you know, trying to de- trying to describe a concept yes. using what you have at hand can yield wildly different results depending on how you're looking at the concept. Saucer, Saucer said what what you were talking about with the, the German and Spanish, the study you'd, you'd written. So he says, meaning is not in the science system. Meaning, well, rather, meaning is in the science system. Meaning doesn't exist outside the language system itself. So if you have uh, feminine or masculine uh, inflectedness going on, that that in turn is reflecting all kinds of cultural uh, 
tones. And so you can't escape those cultural contexts because that's how the system works. And so if you have a discussion with someone else, like I occasionally talk to my students from Japan and say, how would I say project more with your voice in Japanese? And usually the Japanese students will gather together immediately, three or four of them on the stage and talk to each other and consult. And then we'll deliver, um, we don't really say it that way. Or they'll offer an approximation, but then they'll look at each other and, and watching their facial dynamics as well. Yeah, sort of, maybe shrug. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, some of the, uh, it's funny because some of the science on this is is just as fascinating as the philosophy, which is true in some cases for topics and sometimes it's not so much. But language is one of those ones that really is because um, they had a, uh, one of the studies was they were talking about um, IKEA, uh, an IKEA catalog. They had, you know, participants scrolling through it, and with some of them, they had the furniture. Um, they'd given furniture names, and in some of them, they hadn't. What they found is that going back um, and testing the participants' memories, what they found was that participants could not remember. Um, individual characteristics of pieces of furniture after it had, had been labeled. So they were able to remember what they found is that essentially labeling something created a, a concept map in your mind of what was being labeled at the expense of the individuality of the certain pieces. Precisely. Yes. Good. Good and example. So that was fascinating. And the other one was, you know, you were talking about the, the Japanese and there was a study with, um, Japanese and English and I forget what the other nationality was, but they were testing um, essentially like responsibility or accountability. And uh, the, the example they used was they showed a video of a, a kid who um, accidentally knocked into a table and a vase fell over and broke. They said, well, what happened here? And in English, they say that the kid broke the vase, whereas in Japan, they say the vase broke itself. So there's there's accu and you'd as somebody who only speaks English, you would never think about that on your own until you read this study. But really, we don't have a way of our language itself accounting for accident an accident. It's you have to explicitly say Johnny accidentally broke the vase. As it, you would never say the vase broke itself. You know, your mom would look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> right, right. Yes, 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 indeed. But that, but that is all. That is all bound up in how we describe the exterior world, as if this Bertrand Russell and, and Heidegger and Wittgenstein meaning is not fixed or permanent; it is always in flux. And then we zip ahead to the the most recent uh, postmodern. Uh, Derrida, Derridean kinds of, of, of theorizing, which which says that there is no expression, no word that is unambiguous. We can't be unambiguous in what we're saying. Even if I say there is one guitar sitting over there, over there is ambiguous. Right. And guitar is ambiguous. Mm -hmm because I've not specified guitar and so many things about that sentence. We think we know what we're saying and then it slides right out of our hands like a trout on April 1st. Right. You know, right. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think I, I think I said in our very first episode, I have, I have my one friend that every once in a while, him and I will, him and I will have discussions about things, and whenever I feel like I haven't backed into a corner, he starts starts asking me about definitions of words, define <laughs> words and things, and it's, and that's exactly why it becomes such an issue is because, like you were just saying, how people asking somebody to define a word is like asking somebody to define blue. You know, you have a concept of what blue is, but Reference. but when you start when you get to the the edges of where blue and green meet or where blue and red meet and we give very poetic and crayola names or or paint color names yeah yeah but even so even between all those things there's still a boundary that slides more into one than the other right and when so where where do we say well this is now green this is no longer a shade of blue this is a shade of green and interestingly enough they found that in russian um, Russians have two words for blue. One means light blue and one means dark blue. And what they found is that Russian people were actually much more accurate at distinguishing the color blue than people from other nationalities. So again, there's language influencing thought. They have extra descriptions and therefore they are more accurate in using the word. But no, it comes back to what, what you're saying. You know, the, the word, it has a concept, but as far as a a concrete definition trying to nail down and even out outside of the word the more words you put together if you have a sentence or a paragraph or a book then really any kind of concrete interpretation sort of falls apart you know you have a you you can be in the general range but you're still going to interpretively yeah even if even even if you were speaking with the author and asking him explicitly what did you mean you might not interpret the words that he's telling you about what he meant accurately, you know? I meant that this issue is important. How important? Very. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And this is why language is so much, it's fascinating to me. It has been for a lifetime, and and I hope it it always will, because it it, it prompts... Uh, a joyfulness, a sense of humor, a humility, a curiosity. When you really, if you're thinking about it, now you have to have that mindset. If you get angry, and you get, and people will, you know what I mean. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, it, it'll it'll set people off. But but let's consider something. Would you tacitly agree that that the more words we have for a range of blue the more precise we can be yeah i I think so based off of that that study i mean that's one study and it's only using two words so that's pretty sparse evidence but i would say that it seems to lean in that direction if we have more words just as if we have my dad, as I've told you, is a mechanic, and he has still in his garage his remarkable arrays of toolboxes. And of course, entropy has happened over the years since he's been retired, but it's he knows where things are. And how many different wrenches are there, right? Well, let's think about tools how many different kinds of wrenches for different kinds of operations are there? Well, in words, the thing that concerns me as an English teacher, as uh, but which means not teaching English as a language per se, but teaching writing using 
that we have a culture that is seemingly now privileging the diminishment of words. People will complain that there are too many words in this piece of writing, or people will will say, "Well, why didn't they just say it in one sentence instead of two pages?" and and what people uh, and and what that that perhaps unconscious and perhaps inadvertent uh, push results in is what George Orwell wrote about in 1984. So, I mean, we have millions of words, many millions of words, even in English. And the standard person has somewhat ready access to somewhere around 11 or 12,000. And that's diminished almost threefold since the 50s. You know, in, in 60, 70 years, we've lost almost two-thirds of our language, just the everyday person using the lexicon. Which sort of mirrors, to me, the, the loss of uh, species on yeah. the planet. The loss of the, the, the diminishment of the varieties of grain. The, we're, we are coming down toward, we are pushing ourselves crazily toward a, a mono culture, a mono planet in, in the sense of having fewer and fewer varieties. And when we do that, we can make less and less meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember um, when I remember being a kid and me and my brother were watching uh, NFL films on TV and uh, one of the old coaches from the 50s, I don't remember who it was, but it's back in the 50s coaching. He's wearing a three-piece suit on the sideline. He yells out to the players, keep matriculating the ball downfield. Like, that's not <laughs> something you hear a football coach yell today. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, yeah, exactly. You, um, you have tools for a, a job, certainly. And, you know, the same way you're not going to try to remove an oil filter with uh, a crescent wrench, you know, is it there's an oil filter wrench for that. You know, there's, well, there's, there's, there's wrench in both the words. So why don't you just use that wrench? Well, it's the same thing with language, you know? Well, if those both mean this, why don't you just use this simpler word? Well, it's because there's a shade of meaning that's being lost if you don't use it. And and language is a performative thing. This is when the, when the language philosophers started talking about this, and this was in the early 20th century saying, it's not just about describing it's not just assigning signs to things to reference so that we can we can uh, articulate what we're encountering in the outer world that it's performative too and so if you so language does things mm. and if, if we go to a list of verbs for instance suppose we only had two or three verbs that we allowed ourselves to use So now let's let's take how many different ways can you say of walking or using the legs to ambulate, walk away, run away, hike away, crawl away, dance away, and so on. Skip away, jog away. They're all they're all different. Suppose they're all gone. Walk away or come here. And and so go or come. And we limit ourselves to that. Or or in in attributional phrases in writing. Suppose the only word that we allowed people to use was said. 
Who are you? he said. I am myself, she said. He said, and what of it? <laughs> and, you know, we get tired of that really quickly in writing. Right. Because people, well, said, demanded, questioned, articulated, thought, reflected, and and if we if we if we don't make use of those, just like with anything else in life, then we lose them because they just don't become obvious to us to use anymore. And then we start disparaging them because, well, who needs those anyway? Because and so I've sort of gone off onto the culturally um, political, not political in the sense of, of government, but but socio culturally, philosophically, we are in a very difficult place. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's vital parts of, there's vital information that's lost if you delete some of them. The one that always got me as a kid was, you know, reading the, the story about the telephone and, uh, you know, Alexander Graham Bell spills some acid on himself or something. He says, Watson, come here, I need you. It's like, oh, that's, I don't feel like that's the way anybody would say that. <laughs> you know, they, I feel like there should be more emotion, some more, a sense of urgency there, you know. A few expletives that didn't get caught on the nice new yeah, machine. Yeah, I feel like they, they must be cutting something from that story, you know. But it, it no, th those examples you used are, are great because, like you said, for people that don't have that wide range of, of language, those two examples are illustrated perfectly. Everybody has those adjectives for walking or for speaking. And like you said, if you, if you label it down to come or go, you know, well, how fast should I come? How far should I Certainly go? You know, all these, are we yelling? Are we whispering? What, are, you know, what is it? You lose all kinds of information. It's the same way with, with, you know, all that, all kinds of language that's gone. And probably the most, disturbing trend to me about it is it, it's even happening in academia you know some of the classes that i'm taking you know they it's it's getting to the point where they're they're saying listen you know like we want to write in such a way so that the common person can understand what we're saying and that that is a very noble thing to do you certainly don't want to hide um no, you don't want to hide academic information behind technical jargon but there's a difference between jargon and you know writing at a level that reflects your education and knowledge about a topic and is expressing sophisticated in, thought. Yes. Precise thought. Mm. It can never be absolutely precise, but yes, there, there is that. And part, partly yes. what happens academically is that colleges want to make sure that students come to the college. And so colleges will say that they have a high bar about a lot of things. But then that bar sort of gets wishy-washy in order to keep the people there. And it comes back to your dad. Why does your dad have all of those tools, you know? Because if you want to build a car, you need all of them. Now, if you want to build a bicycle, then you don't need that many tools. But the level of sophistication and what you can do with those two things is vastly different. Yeah, what different. kind of thing are you working on? A car? A yeah. truck? A boat, right? A bike, and yeah. So, so yeah. I, so that's. I think that that was a good. That was a good way to go. I think it's very relevant. Very relevant to where we're at, and and the context of the conversation has a much wider implications. Like you were saying, with the you know just the homogenization of 
lots of different things. Languages are disappearing. Words are disappearing. Species are disappearing. Everything is becoming um, smaller or less varied. Yeah. Yeah. Less, less varied for sure. But let's get back into um, some of the more philosophical. Well, hmm. Now I, I need a different word because that was philosophical, but it was more abstract uh, parts. Well, let's let's talk about um, realism versus nominalism. What, what can you, what kind of background can you give me on that kind of thing? So realism, is, uh, ultra brief, but realism is the attempt to in language to adequately, competently, with precision, render what we see externally to be able to understand it, report on it, study on it. Um, Nominalism goes a slightly, to a slightly different place. Then you're talking about more of an abstraction. Um, Allowing more wiggle room. You're, You're not realistically there's that guitar there's that guitar is very vague mm. I see a guitar the the solid body guitar the wood of which is varying from blonde to uh, tones of, of chalkishness with uh, pearl like or mother of pearl perhaps or uh, frets um, four strings it's not a guitar. Well, it's a bass guitar, I guess, and, and so on. So I'm trying to render exactly what I see, which is really one of the best things you can do in college writing or in in the scientific writing that you're talking about. Is say, well, okay, if we're going to talk about something. We can push each other to get more and more specific, like your friend putting in the corner and say, now define this, now define that. Um, what do you think about nominalism and realism? Or put it a different way, which one do you think you find yourself in more often in your use of ordinary language? In, in, in the 20th century, J.L. J. Austin uh, and uh, was leading a group of people, and he was talking about, let's talk about ordinary language. Let's philosophize about what we do with our language on a, on a daily basis. Okay. Yeah, I think that on an, ordin- you know, on an ordinary basis, it really, it's all over the map, but it's mostly nominal language, I feel. Like, very rarely am I just using language to describe something. Language is very there's a lot of metaphor there's a lot of humor there's a lot of things that um that are going on that aren't said with the words which is an (laughs) well a lot of language is not said with the words let's let's put it there um okay so 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 metaphors analogies and so on are inherently vital to communication. Communication is not just performative and not just descriptive of, of, of language. So I'm trying to get something across. Well, even the, that word indicates a metaphor. 
I'm using a metaphor of a chasm, a gorge, or a canyon. Well, then there's a difference between those three. So if I'm trying to get a concept across, am I getting it across something the equivalent of the Grand Canyon? Or am I getting it across something the equivalent of here in Warsaw, uh, Crystal Brook? Or am I getting it across a ditch? Because that would indicate how difficult the task seems to be. Mm. So what you that's what you're talking about with the idea of non... What would you say? Non-language? Oh, uh, the... The words aren't saying what's... Uh... The words aren't saying what we intend, right? necessarily. And we use metaphors constantly to try to, as you said very back at the beginning, do the echolocation, which is a metaphor, of, of triangulating, which is a metaphor, of uh, the meaning that we're attempting to either take in or to convey. And it's a constant process. And that's why language, philosophically, language is organic. It is always it's shifting. It is growing. Limbs die. Other limbs develop. Words utterly change across generations. Yeah, they've saw, I, I like looking up some of those things where they see, they try to um, go back and see how language might have developed in the past based off of what things have grown or died off between now and then, or they try to project it into the future in the 20, you know, in the 22nd century, this is what English will sound like based off of the trends that things are the trends, the way things are going. So we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but let's, let's kind of dive into that language influencing thought, thought influencing language. What what have philosophers said about that? What what's the background? I'm going to pick pick one thing to, to start with, but it's not linear. Uh, in the 20th century, part of the discussion focused on a thing called externalism, which suggests that there can be no meaning unless it's a collective meaning. Externalism suggests that you can't have meaning. You can't find meaning. In yourself, you encounter a text. Well, you've already started collectively building meaning with somebody else who ever created that text or wrote it. Or so, if you're just walking through the world, observing, not writing, not speaking to yourself, or even speaking to yourself, the externalists would say, "Okay, but he's walking through the world, and so he's encountering texts." So we have to take it one more level. You can't have meaning unless you're encountering. Hmm. Much earlier in a different session, we talked about the sense deprivation, and, and, and this doesn't correspond directly to that, but sort of. So we have the layers of sign-signified, referent, descriptive. Then we have people questioning uh, then we have people, uh, there was a group call, called the Vienna Group, it didn't last very long, uh, again in the 20th century, that boxed themselves into an, a, cor of a corner Th that was only logical expressions can convey meaning. In fact, uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to, I, I had something I wanted to share with you and I've got to find it. It was, it was narrow, so narrowly focused Anything that is not empirical, which means measurable, 
and uh, based on logic is meaning less. So I'll win poetry. <laughs> right. You know, I'll win anything except the most perhaps utility based expressions. And it didn't last long because people rejected it for probably obvious reasons <clears throat> because it didn't embrace enough. Okay, along comes Wittgenstein. Heidegger first. Heidegger says language is essential in articulating ourselves as historical beings. For Heidegger, it was important that we look at the context of the culture and the historical moment. The language is about self-interpreting. We constantly reconceive ourselves and justify what we're doing historically with language. If we didn't have language, we wouldn't have history. That's funny. I was. I think I. You and I were talking about it earlier, but I. I was watching a TED talk about songwriting earlier today and um that's what the guy asked the audience at one point you know as he says you know he's talking about a songwriting sense essentially you know lots of people who are watching this video they're watching it because they they have run out of ideas or they have writer's block or something along those lines and basically the the point of his talk was that you know it's easy and you know he and he breaks it down and it is easy but what he says is that you know essentially the purpose of it what you know what what's the purpose of songwriting what's the purpose of what we're doing what's the purpose of language and he keeps kind of going back and back and back and he says you know when you when you break it down the reason we have rhythm and rhyme which is rhythm and rhyme to our, our language just like this it doesn't have to be singing it doesn't have to be poetry what we're doing has rhythm and rhyme the reason it does is if you go back far enough the the purpose of it was to is transmit culture history these all of these things that were meaningful to a people to a next generation you go come back to homer and you come back to these guys and and that's storytelling that's so and that's and that's what he said is is storytelling he said you you can't help but be a good songwriter because that's built into your your dna as a human that's that's what we do is we we storytell we songwrite we create the we create meaning out of these things unless we diminish ourselves entirely into the denotative right and if people let themselves forget their storytelling or put away the storytelling as if it was something only kids do then the denotative language outstrips the connotative language and you are reduced to bring me the crescent wrench i want hamburger for dinner have you gone to the store to put gasoline in the car well you could get through a day doing those things but it wouldn't be a very interesting day yeah there's it's mechanistic you know and and i feel like that comes back to you know what we were saying about the the homogenization the the uh extinction of variability and and what we talked about uh, quite a few episodes ago about how the modern state of affairs and and how common people you know live on a day-to-day -day basis and some of the problems that we're facing with suicide rates and and drug overdoses and these other these other kinds of problems you know i think that you know, it seems strange to say that language is somehow involved in that sort of thing, but it's it, when you start to think about how language influences thought, 
and how that can affect whole systems and the entire planet and all these different things, they all of a sudden you think, oh, it kind of does make sense. You sure. Know? The language of persuasion, the language of of envisionment of, of cultural context. So you have people who still want to argue about whether or not global warming exists because it's so prioritized politically, contextually, that it is part of how they define themselves to believe or to not believe this or that as it is being expressed. And so then people try to find different ways of expressing something which communicates the, the danger without threatening the identity of the individual who holds certain things to be true because and and, and that's the there's the ambiguity and there's and there's the essence language Derek Parfit is many language philosophers to me this is the most fascinating part of it language is our identity <clears throat> it's not it's, we could say that only humans human beings are human beings because they have language therefore we're putting ourselves above everybody else but on a different level language constructs our identity we construct ourselves by our, our descriptions of ourselves by our thinking with words about what it is that we are well, what is it that we are what do we prioritize what do we what do we throw away what do we ignore what do we what are we attentive to and does that change and then that goes back to another podcast that we had which uh, so you're talking about uh, death and change and, and and these kind of things the, the people, the neurocognitivists who argue that there is no discernible soul can say, okay, so we have an area called Broca's area in toward the front part of the uh, left side of the brain. And we have an area called uh, Wernicke's area. And one is for actually shaping the sounds, shaping the language, and the other one is for understanding what's being taken in so you damage somebody in uh one of those areas uh broca's area let's say somebody gets hurt and as a result they have aphasia they have a stroke and they have aphasia they can't use the words they want to use all kinds of aphasia exist but aphasia is not being able to match the words with the concepts or you get damaged in a different way by disease or 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 accident and and you lose part of yourself you don't have the memories of your past people construct for you what you were they narrate for you what you had been but that may not be what you are now and you have lost all the tether with that and so if if a, a bump on the head can cause you to, to fundamentally change the neurocognitivists argue then there's the machine the machine uses language the meat human organic machine uses language and everything that we are is bound up in this machine if you bump ahead get a have a stroke something happens and that fundamentally alters your concept of yourself or other people's concept of you then there is nothing past this hmm. So what's your view on that? Well, do you agree with the uh, the neurocognitives or do you have a, uh, cause I, well, let's think about it for a minute. So yeah. let's take this, this, um, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So we, we have this person who has received damage of some kind mm -hmm. and now 
they perceive themselves as being somebody different than who they were. So the neurocognitivists are going to say, well, now that is that person, and the past person does not exist because the only thing that exists of that is these memories that are no longer associated with the with the organism. Mm-hmm. So how do you, so what what do you think about that? Is that it's pretty compelling. I, I don't. I, I'm too much of a romantic. Uh, I, I I don't deny that, and and so um, I find there's. When you said the thing about uh, you're reminding us of the, the the narrow spectra, I was just writing to a friend about this a couple of days ago uh, that we can perceive with our eyes. There's so much more out there. Well, it, it, in the same manner, I don't think that uh, our small being explains all of the universe or anything that can happen within it and so do i it i i cannot define adequately the word soul i certainly can't empirically render it and i can i can tell myself that i know that it exists but then epistemologically how do i know but i still choose to say that i think there's more than just the meat machine but it's a compelling argument because yeah it it happens (laughs) Your personality can fundamentally change. Yeah, I think you almost have to go to you almost have to go to different parts of philosophy to kind of establish something about it. Otherwise, you know, like we have to talk about time and you know space time again and go back and realize, well, okay, if time is just something that we're perceiving, but it's not something that actually exists the way we think it is, then somewhere out there, that person still is that. Yes. who they were. Yes. And if they exist in somebody's memory, then that person is not dead. That person lives on. Right. So we, yeah, exactly. we look at the death and we look at knowledge, we look at all these different things and you can construct some arguments um, indirectly for that, for maybe that not being true, just because they might not identify as the person they were. There's, there might still be parts of them that are. And how you did, how you divide that up you know, can you say, well, they're exactly the same? Well, now we're into a ship of thesis. That's of. what I was just <laughs> thinking. Yeah, we're back to the ship of thesis. So yeah. it all, here we are again. It's all time. Yeah. All time but language and identity is 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 a fascinating. Thing. If you if you can if you if we accept that we make ourselves out of words, or that other people make of us make us sh- uh, out of words, and that our culture shapes us with words, people's words about us. Cause us to take the turn left or right, and 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 the culture and what we end up foregrounding or privileging in a culture is because of what we talk about most. Yeah, and that's I, I don't know if you've seen. There's that other study where I think it was IKEA again. It's popped up a couple times in this episode, but they had the the one plant that they asked people to only bully, and the other plant that they asked people to speak nice yes. to, and the one grew better than the other. Well, who knows what what all the what all was involved with the experiment you know you can't perfectly but still but still yeah exactly it turns out one way so that brings us into our our final topic which is the question is philosophy of language just philosophy is it is that is that what there is so so now we're getting yeah now we're getting into that um one of the the main metaphysical or epistemological questions of philosophy which is is there things out there that we are discovering or are we 
essentially making the meaning to things, which is what that that question encapsulates. Is philosophy of language just philosophy? So, you know, perspective kind of, you know, what, what, where would you start with that? Well, again, if we, formally, philosophy of language began in the 1800s. So that one's not hard to to target uh, on a chronological basis. I don't believe that that's when people first started talking about language. It's just where the the more formalized uh, system was looking at language itself. Uh, But philosophy is language. So when the word just, what do you mean by just? (laughs) So is, is philosophy of language all, is, is that all there is to philosophy? There cannot be philosophy without language. Right. There can be nothing without language. Now, you see, there's an interesting, there's an interesting <laughs> statement. There can be nothing without language. So now we're back. We're really getting at that, that question. Is there things outside of us that we're discovering or is, are we, is it sort of an anthropomorphic sort of? If there are things outside of us. All right. I'm, I'm having fun with you with this. <laughs> okay. I'll always, but we came into this chamber to make this podcast, closed the door. Are there things outside that door? Yeah. How do you know? Well, because I've experienced them prior to this. Okay. And you're sure of those experiences? Yeah. Okay. And you're sure of those experiences because you've had them over and over again and because you're located here and you bought this place and and so on and so on. Still, right now, do you know what's going on beyond that door? No. You don't know what cat is or something like i don't see his shadow that's normally <laughs> sometimes he sits right outside <laughs> ah, there so, so now, no. now we're in the cave <laughs> so now okay. i don't know <laughs> now, now, so now you don't know but you believe that those things still exist but i could be in a computer simulation where in order to save on memory space and processing power they just delete everything outside of my it's, current sensory yep <laughs> could well be that's also a compelling argument lately but but this, as an example, we, we, we know <clears throat> through our experience that there's something out in that hallway. And some people who have an eidetic memory might be able to say exact or so attentive to their space, they know exactly where everything is in their studio. The, the question would be, if you, when you left the studio, would you be able to adequately tag exactly where everything is and, 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 and list every single thing that's in this studio? No. No. Even if you had an eidetic memory, you couldn't because there's dust motes in this studio. There are, there are particles zipping through us from some other galaxy. And, and so that external world exists, but what does it matter until we make something of it with language? I mean, if it, if it exists, fine. But what do, we, what do we care? The moment we say we care, that's because we are interacting with it in some way and we have to tell a story about it or shape it. So language is, things don't exist without Okay, so this is kind of interesting because the first point that I had written down for this was, while perception exists outside language, the determining factor is whether consciousness exists outside language. So what I'm getting at there at least I think I wrote these podcast notes like a month ago, <laughs> 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 trying to come back to the frame of mind I was in when I wrote them. 
I think what I'm saying is that, all right, so we know that we can perceive things without, without language. And even that's kind of tough to, to prove, but I, but I think the way that we prove that is by looking at, at animals. Like they, they don't have language, but they still perceive things. They, they but we don't necessarily know that they don't have language. They don't have, they don't have a language of a kind that we do. Okay. So. So do you do you think that there's there is not perception outside of language, or how would we go about establishing that there is? You did a. You have this painting that you showed me today. Uh, many paintings, but but one is of uh, a jetty uh, in California, mm. and it's a fascinating ethereal painting where the light just seems to subsume everything else. And you showed me the photograph of it. And there's definitely a relationship between the two things, but I think your your painting captures the subsuming of the of, of other everything else with the light, perhaps more than the photograph does. So I just described a perception. Now I look at that photograph. I look at that painting. I could be silent. Perhaps nobody else is around. I'm going to a museum. I'm looking. Suppose I walk away and I say, hmm, why did I say that? Because there's a perception in there that's working. But is it, is it a, the externalist will say, but is it a perception until it's communicated? Right. So I, I think that that is a, that's a good example because I think that a lot of modern philosophers would put, would say that there is some sort of implicit language happening in the thought process. Yeah. But I'm thinking about um, 2001, A Space Odyssey. You know, like, if you showed up to, you know, but I mean, I guess you could, you still can't prove that they didn't have language, but um, yeah, I think that the observation seems to, I don't know, it, it seems that there's there's perception outside of... Language is called for to share a perception. Language is implied in the internal workings in order to get to the perception. Right. Because the word perception implies some kind of putting things in a context. So, the second half of what I had down there, does consciousness exist outside of language? Can, can we have... Can we consciously think about something without there being language? Going back to the observing those paintings, we're looking at the paintings back and forth. Maybe there's no words going through our head while we're comparing the two of them. But, but is there? But is there? Like because we know that we know that we we perform calculations without doing math in our head. We perform calculations when we're doing things in reality. But we are doing math. Right. We're just yeah, not exactly. enacting math on pages or right. screens. But we're doing it. So are we doing the same thing with language? Yeah, language. So, so do you think that language can exist or consciousness can exist without language? What, what do you think? That's a fascinating question. Define consciousness. 
Just, that's, just how you mean it. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be goofy with no, it. No, no, I, I love it because that's, um, that's one of the most interesting books I ever read was, um, the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind, which is all, you know, this guy essentially established this theory on this exact point, which he's he is saying that consciousness arose with language, and so, you know, I think that consciousness is essentially somebody somebody being home you know the lights are on and somebody's home you know okay there's a lovely metaphor which means that there is an awareness of things mm. well yes i think consciousness i it, 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 i wake up i watch my granddaughter bless her I, you know she, she there there's awareness when you fall asleep in one person's arms and you wake up in somebody else's and 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 and, and language of the kind that we are uh teaching by example you know is is doesn't just automatically happen in a child so if um if she <laughs> wakes up and looks at you and then her whole face gets surprised the eyebrows rise up and her eyes get very large she's aware that something has happened mm whether it's time has passed or location has changed or, or whatever it is, she's wired, as we all are, for language development acquisition. We know this neurocognitively. She's having perceptions, and she might, and, and the language might be, yeah, okay. Awareness can happen without formalities of grammatical language where this gets very interesting and complex is with um computers because if we're going to say that consciousness and language are, are linked in such a way i guess we so we're trying to establish if there's consciousness without language but is language can there be language without consciousness is is that yes. is that reverse also true yes because language exists okay so i die and i'm gone my consciousness has, has evaporated gone into the earth and the soil become the stuff of stars or i'm in some other dimension but or none of the above but language still exists without me being here language exists exterior to us in the sense of a collective ownership of language is bigger than all of us english will exist when every single one of the 300 million people in the united states now are gone it might not exist the same way but would language exist if the entire species was gone yes in in the recordings and the artifactual material so we're back to the question of <laughs> are there external concepts or are their internal concepts. So you see, that that's the one that's in that's kind of interesting to me that that you say it that way because I think to me, you know, I I think that all right, well, obviously something like the universe or you know that guitar amp is really there. That's something that is out there that I'm discovering using my senses. But something like language to me doesn't seem to be that same. Doesn't fall into that same category. It doesn't seem to be an external thing that I'm discovering. It seems um, 
it it's it's language seems to be part of me personally now you and i share language yes but a word may mean something to me and it may mean something different to you the definition may be different and one of us may be right one of us may be wrong maybe we are both right or both wrong interpreting the it ambiguity more. levels yeah right yeah. and like you said earlier we use language to define who we are to define our reality so language is definitely a tool to interpret these things and i'm actually using language to discover the, those external things yes. my, my conception of a guitar amp how i break that down linguistically determines how i discover it how it makes the guitar example is perfect because there's there's a guitar there and there's a bass guitar and as a musician those are very distinct concepts to me but some somebody else might see two guitars you know so it's just funny to think about well is language something that we are discovering are we actually i'm seeing that concept and now i'm i'm discovering language with it or is it something that's internal to me i'm going to use the language of capitalism <laughs> to try to make a, a because the, your question is it's what we are all wrestling with when we think about this when we're very very young babies what do we do with language? We acquire it. What does acquire mean? To get something that you did not have. Which means it's external. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you have the capacity within to do the acquiring. Yeah. But you still, if, if you were... It, well, look, the, this has happened enough with people studying feral children as well, but so just conceptually. If a baby had no external uh, experiences of language, the baby wouldn't have language. The baby wouldn't just start speaking in English unless there were people, because my, my granddaughter, for instance, could be raised in Japan and and Japanese would probably be the first language or Japanese and English with English speaking parents would also learn, you know, so it doesn't just happen. But these children, so these feral children, that's a good example. If you had a child that's not around any people, they might never develop language, but they still have consciousness, right? They still have awareness, um, awareness. They still have perception. But what do they do with it? I can bump into things and not know what they are. How can I communicate anything? How to communicate any needs that I have? Right. Now I'm going to be really hypocritical and take us back to religion. <laughs> the Christian religion, specifically. Uh, but, but out of the, the more ancient... But, did the universe exist first? In the beginning was the word. So the universe itself is spoken into existence. <laughs> so <laughs> wasn't that fun? <laughs> I, I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> oh, man.
I just that's the yeah. joy. That's the joy of philosophizing about language. It's not just. I mean, you can be you can be sitting with a friend and having a drink and and uh, babbling it back and forth, and that that's joyful in itself. But it is serious in the in the in the sense of when we really probe at epistemology, what we think we know, uh, spirituality, metaphysics, ontology, our very being. It all hinges on language. Mm. So it seems like things exist outside of language, but there's really language is what makes us human in the in the fact that how we discover those things and how we interpret them and how we make use of them all has to filter through language. Yes, we humanize that which is beyond us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. We're taking everything and making it human. Mm-hmm. It's a wild concept. All right. Thank you for listening to From Nor to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. Recording production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Question off my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep pondering.